you have your Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 8, we'll be looking this morning at verses 12 through verse 20. And if you're taking notes this morning, you should have an outline there for you in your bulletin. And the title of this morning's sermon is The Light of the World. The Light of the World. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. The Apostle John writes this, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this massive text of Scripture here in the Gospel of John, one of these I am statements of Jesus being the light of the world. And I pray as we unpack this morning all that Christ is saying in that singular statement, and as we look at the response of the Pharisees, that we would be encouraged today to see Christ's infinite wisdom and to see Him claiming to be who He is in a way that would cause us all to bow down and worship this light, Jesus Christ, our Savior, today. And I pray this in His name. Amen. Well, we live in a world that is shrouded with darkness. In, a, in the larger culture of our country, there is a black hole of accurate knowledge about the things of God. All around us, there is thick blackness devoid of any spiritual light. We live in a day where the blind are leading the blind. We live in a day where the dead are spreading their spiritual gangrene. Even liberal churches are filled with the rigor mortis of a dead corpse. Our society is pitch black. People in our world praise what is evil and they mock what is good. And those within this kingdom of darkness live in the blindness of religious superstition. They are ready to jump off of a cliff into the night air. And they are filled with vain imaginations about who God is and the way of salvation. It is already midnight within the souls of the unconverted men who live in the gloom of their guilt. They cannot see the truth of God, and neither can they see or understand their own spiritual condition. They are happy to walk into the jaws of death, unprepared and uninterested in knowing their future. Now, let me share with you a few well-known quotes, maybe, of some famous people over the course of our world who show us how lost 
they are in spiritual darkness. It was Ernest Hemingway who said, all thinking men are atheists. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, lighthouses are more helpful than churches. Listen to Edgar Allan Poe, all religion, my friend, is simply evolved out of fraud, fear, greed, imagination, and poetry. How about John Lennon of the Beatles? Great theologian, he is. He said, quote, I believe in God, but not as one being, not as the old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. How about your favorite movie star, Brad Pitt? When I got untethered from the comfort of religion, it wasn't a loss of faith for me. It was a discovery of self. How about George Clooney? I don't believe in heaven or hell. I don't even know if I believe in God. Richard Dawkins. Religion is capable of driving people to such dangerous folly that it seems like faith to me should qualify as a kind of mental illness. Why am I sharing these quotes with you? Because this is the world that we live in. We live in a world that is shrouded with spiritual darkness. And all the elites of our culture and all the celebrities of our culture tout this darkness and they know not what they speak of. This is the world that we live in. It's filled with darkness and it's devoid of any true spiritual life. We live in a world that is blind and boisterously bitter at God. We live in a world that promotes darkness like McDonald's promotes chicken nuggets. They're cheap, they're disgusting, and they leave you with a stomach ache. Today, I don't want to bring you McDonald's. I want to bring you the truth of God's Word. Today, I don't want to bring you darkness. I want to bring you into the light. Today, I'm not here to add to your depression. I'm here to give you hope. Today, I'm not here to discourage you. I'm here to deliver to you the best news you could ever hear. It is into such a world of spiritual darkness that Jesus came and said, I am the light of the world. And by this declaration, Jesus asserts that he came to bring true light, which is the knowledge of God. Jesus comes to extend to us saving grace to those of us who were born in utter darkness. He has come to bring the one light of salvation to those of us who were once dead in the blackness of sin. Jesus has come to shine forth his blazing truth. Jesus has come to free us with the light of his love to those of us who were once ensnared and entrapped by our sin. Today I call you to arise and shine, for your light has come. Your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. In the popular words of the song, Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes and let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Open my heart, a hope of a life spent with you. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. This morning, I want to give you three headings out of our passage that will help us understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light 
of the world. And so let's look at it this way. Again, in your outline, the first heading is this. There is Jesus's awesome claim here in verse 12, where Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'd like to spend most of our message this morning on this one verse, and I'd like to share with you five components that you'll see in this one verse that will help us really evaluate and appreciate what it is Christ is saying. The first thing he says is, in your first blank, is this. He says, I am. I am. Now, let's not skip over that too quickly because we understand that Jesus says this no less than seven times in this Gospel of John. There are the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And each time he says this, he starts off by saying, I am. And in the original language, that's ego eimi. And what that says is, basically, Christ is giving a double saying of, I am, I am. Or you could translate it as saying, I am who I am. Now, the reason that should sound a little bit familiar to you is that we read that for the first time in the Old Testament when God reveals Himself to Moses at the burning bush. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, you remember the story well, where Moses is out and he sees the bush aflame, and yet it's not being consumed, and God begins to speak to him and say, take off your sandals for you're on holy ground. He then tells Moses that he's to return to Egypt in order to be a deliverer of the Israelites out of the most powerful nation on the earth, the nation of Egypt. And when Moses is talking to God in verse 13, Exodus 3, Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, God needs no name. He needs no introduction. He is who he is, and he is the great I am. And therefore, when Jesus makes this claim here in our text this morning and six other times throughout the gospel, what he's saying in each case is, I am God. I am divine. I am over all. Jesus is not just a man. He is fully man and he's fully God, what theologians call the hypostatic union. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus does possess all the attributes of God. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. He is a mighty God. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is the agent of creation. He is the bridegroom. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Holy One. He is the Lord of glory. He is the head of His church. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the Almighty. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is faithful and true. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I am that I am. This morning, we should just pause right there and fall on our face before this man, Jesus Christ, and acknowledge that He is God. We must worship Him as such. We must stop in our tracks and stand in awe of the divinity of Christ, for He is 
God. Not only does Jesus say, I am, but he continues this statement. Your second blank there is the light of the world. The analogy of light has a special connection here to the Feast of Booths that we've been covering in John chapter 7. It was one of the two rituals that were practiced in this feast. The first was the pouring out of water when the priest would take a picture of an empty pitcher into the pool of Siloam, scoop it up, bring it up to the altar, pour it out, and on a daily basis, people would appreciate this ritual that would point to the fact that God provided water for them as they went through the desert in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And that's why Jesus said in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's capitalizing on this water ritual. Then there was also a ritual of light at the feast, just as there was the daily water pouring ceremony, there was also a nightly candle lighting ceremony. And in the court of women where Jesus was teaching, there were four large candelabras that were lit, providing a blazing ambience of light in the night sky. So brilliant was their light that one ancient Jewish source declared, quote, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect their light. These well-lit candelabras serve as a reminder of how God lit up the sky as a pillar of fire so the Israelites could cross through the dark desert night. He led the Israelites through the desert, and so the Jews celebrate the fact that when they were in the wilderness, God was providing water and God was providing light or direction. And so in this period of celebrating the Feast of Booths, the Jews were well known to dance enthusiastically around the candelabras that were lit through the night, holding blazing torches in their hands and singing songs of praise. It was against this backdrop of the candlelighting ceremony that Jesus announces that He is the light of the world. It's almost like He's saying, you see the water? You come to me, I'll give you water of eternal life. You see that light? I am the light of the world. And so when he says, I am the light of the world, we should also connect not only with the history of Israel through the wilderness, but with the prophecy of the book of Isaiah, which points to Jesus as the servant Messiah who would be a light to the nations. Listen to Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is the prophecy about Christ. He is the servant Messiah. He is the light to the nations. This is exactly who Jesus is, and this is what He did. We also read about that in Isaiah 49, 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus is that light. Jesus is the illumination. Jesus is the bright morning star. And this means that Jesus provides spiritual light that will clarify and bring clarity to all nations of His divinity. Yes, He came for the Jews, but He also came for the whole world. Jesus came to open blind eyes, to open deaf ears, to bring out prisoners from their spiritual dungeon. If you're here this morning under the sound of my voice and you're sitting in darkness today, I want to call you out 
into the light. If you're stuck in a dark place today, you need to hear this message about Jesus being the light. If you're running today into the darkness, I beg you this morning to come back into the light. Scientists tell us that on a dark night, the human eye can see a candle flickering from some 30 miles away. Other scientists tell us that the human eye can see light at an almost unlimited distance. Looking up into the sky on a very clear night, the Triangulum Galaxy can sometimes be seen, which is a whopping distance of 3.24 million light miles, or light years, I should say, away. Now, that's staggering. Well, let me tell you something this morning. Jesus burns brighter than a candle 30 miles away. And Jesus burns brighter than a galaxy, three million light years away. Jesus is the light of the world. The Apostle John illustrates this further in his book, Revelation. Turn there with me, if you will. We know John wrote this Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistles, and then the book of Revelation. And I want you to see something that he writes here about the light of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation chapter 21. Verse 22 and following, John wrote this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Now, isn't that awesome? Because we think about the greatest source of light in our world, and our solar system is the sun. Second might be the moon, and then the stars that shine at night. And yet here we're reading that when you get to heaven, there's no more sun, there's no more moon, there's no more planets, there's no more galaxies. God is the light, and its lamp is the lamp. Talking about self-generating power, no more solar power needed, no more batteries, no more search for endless energy. God is the light. Jesus is the lamp. He is the light of the world. Third, in this statement, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, the word follows. This word follows sometimes is used in a general sense to speak to the crowds who would follow Jesus, but more specifically, it's used to describe Christians who are called into relationship with Christ that involves ongoing discipleship. If you turn toward someone in a moment, and then you turn away from them in the next moment, then you're not really following them. Following requires an ongoing focus, an ongoing pursuit, and an ongoing desire to stay close to the leader. And over and over again throughout the New Testament, Jesus issued this invitation for people to follow Him. In each gospel, it's represented there in the cross-references I listed for you. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In Mark 10.21, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. In Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. At the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is interacting with Peter and he tells him to feed his sheep, he also says that he should follow me. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, 
to follow has, as we've already mentioned, a beginning element to it, but also an ongoing element to it. If you're going to follow someone, there is a beginning to that activity and an ongoing condition in order for the following to continue. The beginning is what we call salvation. When you're not following Christ and you start following Christ in that moment of justification when God declares that you are righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ, then in that moment, in, the, in an instant, you begin to follow Jesus. You and I used to follow the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy while we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. We used to follow the devil, the prince of the power of the air. Now we follow the prince of heaven, Jesus Christ himself. We used to follow our sin. Now we follow our Savior. We used to be powerless to follow because of our sinful nature, and now we've been made new in Christ, and so we're able to follow him when he calls. And when Jesus calls us through Scripture to follow Him, it encompasses both our salvation, that initial turning to Him, and our sanctification that we continue to follow. For this is in the present tense, the idea that it's an ongoing idea that we continue to follow day after day. When you begin to follow, it's all God's grace. When you continue to follow, that's an act of obedience. That's what God's called us to. I'm talking here about an act of allegiance. I'm talking here about it's a privilege to follow and serve our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about lordship salvation. I'm talking about the fact that you come to him, he changes you, you become a soldier in the Lord's army, and you march behind him for the rest of your life. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Notice here it says, whoever follows me, There's no discrimination in heaven. It's not that only the educated can follow, only the privileged can follow, only those raised in a Christian home can follow, only those who are from the evangelical West can follow. No, this invitation is for all people of the earth. This invitation goes out into the highways and the byways. Whoever would call upon me, it matters not what culture, culture or country that you're from, Jesus calls us to follow. Please note that this passage does not say that Jesus will follow you. Don't expect to get him checking like on your Facebook post. This is not about you doing your thing and somehow Jesus is part of it. No, this is about you dropping whatever you're doing and you run to where Christ is and you follow him and his word and you abandon everything else in your life. This is not like I'm going to kind of go out here and do my own thing and hopefully Jesus likes it. No, no, no. You totally surrender all that you are for Him, that you leave your life, you leave your direction, you abandon your, your, your whole self, and you follow the path that He leads for you. And He leads us in that path throughout the Scripture, and that's why we read things like Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. This is why we read in 1 John 1.7, but if I walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Husbands, this means for you 
that if when you don't feel like loving your wife or sacrificing for her or serving her, you do it anyway in the power of the Spirit, begging God to help you see the light that marriage goes so much better when you're a servant leader. Wives, this means for you that when you don't feel like submitting to your husband, you don't have the respect for him that God calls you to have because he's far from perfect, that you do it anyway in the power of the Spirit as God's light from his word shows you how to be a beautiful wife submitting to and winning your husband without a word by your chaste and respectful behavior. Kids, this means that when you don't feel like obeying your parents, you ask God to help you walk in the light and to do that which would honor the Lord. College students, this means that you're not on your own, that you're constantly seeking accountability and discipleship from spiritual leaders in your life, and you submit to them as you submit to Christ. In Christ, we are all called to follow Him. We are all called to submit to His Lordship. We are all called to bear fruit in the power of the Spirit. We're all called to walk in the light. The fourth part of this claim that Jesus makes, He says, I am. Secondly, the light of the world. Third, whoever follows me. Fourth, your next blank, will not walk in darkness. To walk in darkness means to stay in your life of sin. To walk in darkness means that you are purposely pursuing the deeds of the flesh. To walk in darkness means that you are overcome with your lusts and your evil desires. And the gospel is a message of repentance. The gospel is a message where you have a change of mind leading to a change of heart leading to a change of behavior, a change of direction, and it means that you don't continue to dabble in the things of this world. It means that you avoid and abandon things like 50 shades of gray, 50 shades darker, and 50 shades freed. It's all garbage, and it's filled with darkness, and people flock to the movie theater, which I'm not against watching good movies, but you know what I'm talking about in this particular set of movies, that's just filled with darkness. It's filled with evil. And people look all the time at things like that. If you're here this morning and you're struggling by looking at pornography on your phone or on your iPad or on your computer, then I call you to look to Christ who is ever more beautiful, who alone can give you joy and satisfaction in your life. This means that if you've been over-friendly, or borderline flirtatious with that girl at work, or that lady in the gym, or that woman that lives down your street, or that fantasy in your heart. It means that you run out of the darkness. God has called you out of the darkness of living a double life. God has called you away from being duplicitous with your actions and to stop dumbing down your sin. This means that you're not hiding alcohol in your home or smoking weed in your car. This means that any sin that you're hiding in the darkness, you're to abandon it once and for all. Repentance is what we're talking about here. We're talking about turning from all of your sin and trusting in the light of God's Word. Only Christ can bring you light. Only Christ can bring you happiness and contentment and more joy than this world can ever offer. Listen to what we read in some of these passages listed for you, Ephesians 5, 5 through 8. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with these empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Don't give in. Don't partake with the world. You used to be in darkness, but now you are in the light. Or listen to Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Which means at work this week, don't fall into the trap of grumbling and complaining. No, the Bible tells us to avoid that kind of behavior. If you're at home this week, don't fall into disputing or arguing. Be blameless and innocent of evil. In a dark and twisted world, you are to shine as the light of Christ. You are to be different. The world is full of darkness. We don't need more dark people walking around. We need lights walking around in this world. You walk to the beat of a different drum. How about 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8? For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and with a helmet of hope of salvation. So are you living in the spiritual darkness of sin or in the spiritual light of day? Are you sober this morning or are you suffering from the hangover of this world? Are you putting on the armor of God, the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet of the hope of salvation? Are you ready for battle? Are you winning the fight? Are you following the commander, our Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that you are a soldier in the Lord's army. That means today, come out of your darkness and come into this marvelous, wonderful, everlasting light. One last thought here about these five components of this magnificent statement of Christ, E, in your outline says, but will have the light of life. You will have the light of life. What do you get for giving up the darkness? You get the light of life. The light of Christ produces in your life. The light of life is knowing Christ and having Him reveal to you the treasure that He is. Jesus is our light, and Jesus is our life. And without Him, you have darkness and death, but with him, you have joy and hope. Without him, you have sadness and despair. But with him, you have identity and purpose. Without him, you have confusion and apathy. And that's why we read in John 1, verse 4, in him was the life, and that life was the light of men. That's why we read in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's why we read in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, it was God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in your hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you again this morning, are you living life to the fullest today? Are you enjoying a holiday at the beach? Or are you playing with mud pies in the dirt? 
Are you experiencing all that God has for you? Or are you missing out because of your bondage to the world? Are you breathing in the fresh air of peace and happiness? Or are you suffocating in the stench of your sin? J.C. Ryle writes on this, on this text, quote, The lights with which many please themselves shall go out into the valley of the shadow of death and prove worse than useless. But the light Christ gives to everyone that follows him shall never fail. Won't you come this morning to the light of life, the Lord Jesus Christ? I want to move on and show you these next two headings as we see, secondly, Jesus' apologetic response. So we saw his awesome claim. He's the light of life, the light of the world. But how did his listeners respond? Your next blank says the accusation of the Pharisees, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The Pharisees are trying to call Jesus out and say that his testimony is not true. And the reason that Jesus was testifying and they say it's not true is because he only gave the testimony himself. And they say, well, you can't do that. You can't just testify about yourself. Don't you know, Jesus? You need at least two witnesses, according to Deuteronomy 17, 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So they're saying to Christ, look, it doesn't work. I know you're saying you're the light of the world, but we don't believe you because you're testifying about yourself. They have the audacity to confront Jesus and tell him that he doesn't really know the Bible. So what do you think about this? I think these Jews are about to get burned. They're about to get served a lesson from Christ. Let's look at it. Your next blank says the answer Jesus gives, because it does kind of seem logically like maybe they're up to something. They're saying, you've got to have two witnesses, you're just one. How does Jesus answer this problem? Number one, Jesus knows where he is from. He knows where he is from. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. First of all, Jesus is saying that he is the only one who could possibly know his origin because no human could fully understand. No human was there at the beginning of time. There was no human being there at the beginning of creation. No human can testify authoritatively about Jesus and who he is because humans are not authorities on spiritual truth. God is. So Jesus is saying that even if I did want to testify about myself, that would be just fine because no one else knows where I came from and no one else knows where I'm going. Second answer that Jesus gives is that his judgment is true. His judgment is true. Verse 15 and 16, he says to these Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. The judgment of the Jews, that they're, the one that they're making, is not truly made according to the Old Testament Scriptures, for the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to Christ. The judgment these Jews are using is not one that they're making based on a noble purpose or reason, but rather one they're making according to the flesh. J. 
Jesus had just told them in John 7, 24, do not judge based on appearances, but judge with the right judgment. And what these Pharisees are doing is they're making their judgment based on appearances, based on human perspective, and based on their own flesh. When Jesus says in the middle of verse 15, he says, I judge no one. He's not saying in this context that he never judges at all. We already know that. He's already, we've already been told that all the judgment of the Father has been given to the Son. So what he's saying in verse 15 is he's saying, I don't judge like you judge. You guys judge according to the flesh because you're trying to condemn me and crucify me for something I've never done. And what he's saying to them is, I judge no one. And, and what he's saying is, I don't judge anyone according to the flesh or according to your human argument. Furthermore, Jesus could be saying here that he hasn't judged them yet fully because the end of the world hasn't come. But what we do know is Jesus is the judge because John 5, 27 says that he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And so he's saying that if he does judge, he judges in the way that would agree with the father who sent him. And this leads us to the third part of Jesus's answer to their question, where are your two witnesses, Jesus? They're asking him. And so Jesus explains the testimony, it's your next blank, Jesus explains the testimony of two people. It's in Deuteronomy 17, 6, and again in 19, 15, where the law does say that at least two witnesses are needed to establish a credible witness. And so what happens here in verse 18 in verse 17, he's saying, hey, you're right. He concedes their argument, says, you're right. The law says you got to have two people. I agree with you. And then he names the two people, verse 18, I am the one and the father is the other. So his two witnesses are himself and his father. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. Can you get two better witnesses than the father and the son? You gave the Son, the witness from the Father, the Father gives the testimony. They both give the testimony. This is a lock-solid case. Testimonies from men are good, but they can sometimes be false. But claims and testimonies from the first and second persons of the Trinity can never be false because God is not a man that He should lie. These same Jews later sought out people who would give false testimonies about Jesus. Isn't it interesting that they're all upset about him giving a false witness, and yet in Matthew 26 and again in Mark 14, they went out to find false witnesses that would testify against him. Well, here, Jesus is saying that his testimony is true because it agrees with the Father's testimony. John 5, 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So here's what we're learning. Jesus's answer is biblical, he does have two people testifying, himself and the Father. Jesus' answer is authoritative. No person has authority to ultimately affirm these things but God himself. And so Jesus' answer is the perfect apologetic answer. That word apologetic means to give a defense. He's not giving an apology here. Like what we think of it in our English vernacular, like, I'm sorry, let me give an apology. You're right, I was wrong. That's not what we mean in theology when we say an apologetic answer. We mean he defends the faith. He defends his divinity, and he goes up against their biblical argument and says, I have two witnesses. It's me and the Father. And what we see here is man's attempt to undo Jesus using their own human logic. 
and they accused Jesus of using what apologists call circular reasoning. So they're saying to Christ, you can't use yourself to prove yourself because that's circular reasoning. You can't do that. You have to have two other witnesses outside of yourself to prove that you're true. The problem with that is there is no other authority outside of Christ being Christ. You can't go outside of Christ to find a greater authority to affirm what Christ has already said. And today, we would do well to follow Jesus' apologetic. We use creation to prove creation. And we use the Bible to prove the Bible. And while skeptics scream and say, you can't do that, or you're going to use circular reasoning, our answer should be, yes, we are. We are using secular reasoning. We're using God to prove God. And then you turn it on them. What are you using to prove your claim? Your brain? Some philosopher's book somewhere? The laws of logic? None of those have authority, and yet that's how they argue from their presupposition there is no God. We all argue from our presupposition there is a God, and I'm going to use God's Word in order to explain to you that you need Him. The Bible tells us that men know the truth and suppress it in unrighteousness, and that men are without excuse. Romans 1 tells us that we have the testimony of creation, the testimony of our conscience, and the testimony of Christ, and that ought to be enough. That's how Jesus handles this apologetic answer. Third main heading is this, Jesus' appalling conclusion, his appalling conclusion, verses 19 and 20. Your next blank says this, these Jews don't know their God. They don't know their God. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So what are the Jews doing? It's a desperate attempt at changing the subject. It's a diversion. They want to change the, the argument here and make an accusation, say, hey, what about your father? They could be talking about what they thought was his earthly father, Joseph. They could have been mocking him, considering the fact that he could have been an illegitimate child since Mary was pregnant before she married Joseph. So they're trying to totally change the argument here. But Jesus' answer cuts to the heart. And he says, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus is saying, you don't even know Yahweh. You don't know your covenant-making God. You don't know God the Father. For if you really knew him, you would know me since he sent me. John 14, 7, Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the fact that these Pharisees who prided themselves so much in knowing Scripture and living according to the law, these, these Pharisees who had such pious lives and pious prayers, these Pharisees who judged men and judged Jesus Christ, they don't even know God. They don't have a relationship with God. They've never even seen God. Their whole life has been a lie. Their whole existence has been reprehensible. Their whole purpose was not to live for Christ, but in God's greater wisdom to be the very agents to instigate the crucifixion of Jesus. So these Pharisees were used by God, all right. They were used to nail Jesus to the cross through the Roman soldiers because of their pride, because of their spiritual snobbery, because of their love for power. They had their only hope crucified on a cross. They didn't know God. They killed his son. 
The last thing that we see here is these Jews have no power. They have no knowledge of God, and they also have no power to do anything other than what God would allow or ordain or orchestrate according to his sovereign wisdom and power. Verse 20, we read, these words were spoken in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the area that we believe Jesus was teaching, known as the court of women or an area where there was a treasury. It had that name because of 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles or treasure boxes located in this section of the temple complex. This would have been in the court of women, and it would have been believed that each of these 13 treasure boxes were marked to designate how the money was to be put in and then used for ministry. This would have been the appropriate place to bring temple taxes or to give certain free will offerings. And it may have been here that Jesus would have even seen the widow put in her two mites. We also know from the layout of the temple, that the Sanhedrin, which is the main Jewish council, met nearby in a special hallway to accommodate their meetings, and they could have even heard exactly what Jesus is saying in his teaching here, and yet no one arrested Jesus. What it says in verse 20, no one arrested him. How come? Because his time had not yet come. We know that no one dared to lay a finger on him because no one ever spoke like this man. No one arrested Jesus because his hour had not yet come. The hour to go to the cross would be coming in about six months, but not now. No one rushes God. No one thwarts his plan. No one messes with the sovereign timing of God's wisdom and his purpose in how and when he does what he does. Just a reminder to all of us this morning that God is on his throne and he doesn't cower to the arguments of man. And Jesus will eventually be arrested on his timetable, and he will be crucified, and all things will happen according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Aren't you encouraged this morning that Jesus is a faithful teacher, being the light of the world? Aren't you blessed today to be reminded that Jesus is the light of the world? Aren't you thankful today that Jesus doesn't fret any argument and he's never undone by any human reason. Aren't you stirred up today to be a, a louder witness for the cause of Christ? And I'm so thankful to have an example like this in the Bible, to even know how to defend the faith, to say, you know what? My God reigns, and he rules, and I don't have to succumb to human wisdom. I can only tell you what my Bible says. I'm thankful to know that while my sins are many, His mercy is more. And I'm thankful this morning that while all of us struggle with some of the things I've discussed today about being in the darkness, that you don't have to stay there. You could be brought out into the light. And so as we leave this morning, let me ask you just a couple of questions to think about what impact what impact has seeing Jesus as the light of the world made on your life today? I hope that you'll go home and with your family over your dinner time or sometime later in this day or this week, you would discuss these five components of Christ's statement that I am the light of the world, that whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. What impact will that have on your life this week? Number two, how can you apply in evangelism what you learned today about Jesus' apologetic. Don't you like the way Jesus didn't succumb to their argument and try to somehow find human instruments to explain what only the divine can explain? Continue to use 
that wisdom of reason. Yes, it's circular reasoning that comes from God, and it proclaims God. And by the way, Matthew 5:14 through 16 can't be skipped over with this uh, a cross-reference for this text. You are the light of the world. So Jesus is the ultimate light, and you are little lights. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. No! Don't let Satan blow it out, right? You put it on a stand, and it gives light into all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Your apologetic is not only verbal, it's practical. It's how you live. It's how you love people. It's how you feed the poor. It's how you serve your neighbor. It's how you clean up after yourself. That Living for Christ is both ways. It's what you say and it's what you do. And you can be a light both ways this week in your evangelism. Third, is it possible that you, like these Pharisees, think that you know God but you don't. You come to church week after week. You have religious knowledge. You think that you can outsmart your professor. But you're in the darkness, just like these Pharisees are. You are in your own self-righteous pride. Could it be today that that's you? And that you need to hear, maybe for the very first time, these words of Christ saying, I am the light of the world, come out. Come out of your darkness. Come into the light. Repent of your sin. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will give you water that lasts for eternal life. Follow me, and I will give you the light of life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at such a powerful, well-known passage of Scripture one of these seven I am statements from Christ himself. I pray, God, that we would stand in awe of the Lord Jesus thinking through what we've learned today and this incredible statement that Christ gives. I pray, God, that we would see Christ's wisdom over the arguments of men, that we would see this invitation that whoever would come today is welcome to come out of darkness into the light into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I call people today, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw people to follow for the very first time, that you would take others who've been following for a while, but who've lagged behind or gone astray, that you would call them back to the fold, that you would encourage them today with the light of your love and of your grace and of your kindness, that today we would see Christ the light of the world. May we behold him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.